welcome to the Fram Jacket podcast. Fram make jackets for curious minds. And that means that we have a podcast where we are curious. Curious about what interesting people are like and what makes them tick, uh, what's good and bad. And in this case, we talked to Nick Johannesson, which I'm now getting right, as you will hear, uh, who is well-dressed dad. Um, if you're into uh, men's style, uh, you probably know about well-dressed dad. Um or certainly you should now because he's very entertaining he's very tongue-in-cheek but he knows an enormous amount about jackets um and he does his style blog in a very down-to-earth uh but appreciative way um which i really enjoy uh it's a very he's norwegian so there's a very sort of scandy british sense of humor to it and um he just has this encyclopedic knowledge so we hooked up in Cheltenham uh in a noisy cafe and um I think there's a lot to learn it's really interesting um about what I do and what he does uh, we're both called Nick but he's different um hello and welcome to Carly Chios in uh Cheltenham which has reasonably good sound for recording, I hope. And I am sat with Nick Johansson, who is the proprietor of Well Dressed Dad, which is one of the better known um, men's style blogs. And uh, he is from Norway and he is visiting with his family. Um, would you say that that was accurate, Nick Johansson? Well, pretty much accurate, but the name is Johansson. Oh. Uh, but apart from that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and why are you in Cheltenham? Uh, we just like to visit England on our holidays and go to quite random places, really, where we hope to find things of interest. Uh, the UK is very different from Norway in that in Norway you can drive for hours without finding anything of interest. Uh, you might stop in Kristiansand and the next point of entry will be Tunsberg, then Oslo, two hours between each. But in England... You can go to somewhere, stay there for a week, and basically just within half an hour's drive, mm. you've got enough to keep you occupied for the entire week. So we'll pick places, uh, places we don't have any relationship to before. I visited Cheltenham when I was a little boy, uh, so I'm back now, say, uh, 40 years later. No idea about Cheltenham, There's, I know it's famous for horses, but um, it's near lots of other places, so it's a good starting point. Cool. Um, do you have a British connection or is it simply that you're Norwegian so you naturally speak English extremely well? Uh, my mother is from Nuneaton so okay. uh, I was born in Aarhus in Denmark then I spent the first four or five years of my life in Oxford right. before moving back to Norway my father's Norwegian so uh, I've always been uh, part English mm. part Norwegian from nowhere and you have quite so I don't know many Norwegians, and it's very easy to generalise having met a couple of Norwegians, but you seem to have a very British sense of humour. Do you, th do you think that's the case? Quite dry, quite sarcastic, uh, downbeat. Well, Norwegian humour has tended to be very uh, inherited from Britain. Uh, traditionally, the most popular Norwegian humour television shows or comedians were using British material mm. and um, I find it a bit sad to say but Monty Python is still huge in Norway no, long don't, after don't it's forgotten at all. everywhere else uh, yeah so 
I think Norway inherits a lot of its humour from Britain. So just talk about your blog for a sec. Is um, I think the reason that people, and certainly I graduate your, towards your, your, your blog, which is now also sort of social media and you do videos and, and all kinds, you, you're a real authority, is that first of all, you're, you're very authentic. You, you clearly have a passion for this and you didn't invaded by loads of ads and product placements and stuff like that. It, it seems to me that you will concentrate on products that you genuinely are interested in. Um, and uh, and so that that means that you, I trust what you're doing, um, and and also that you have this huge knowledge. You have a great deal more knowledge about jackets than I do, and I make them. I just go on instinct, um, and then um, you, you present that with a real sort of sense of humour and, and this sort of not overly. I think the world of style and of fashion. I'm very wary of the word fashion. Um, it, it can be extremely pretentious and I think you seem to shy away very deliberately away from that pretension you touched on a whole range of topics <laughs> yeah. there but if we start with fashion first I have absolutely no interest at all in fashion fashion is a marketing uh, invention Yeah, uh, it means you can make people buy new stuff every half year or whatever really a very very little interest uh, I could say that I'm very into the classic designs, but most of the time, like you, I'm just being intuitive about what I like. I'll see something and think, that's nice, or see other things and they just don't register at all. Yeah. But if you stick to the classic designs, you will, just by pure fluke, be fashionable every few years but you'll never be unfashionable either. Right. But if you're going by fashion all the time, whatever you've bought is good for the next six months and then you're just looking hopelessly out of fashion so that's really not very interesting at all uh, second point you said you design your jackets uh, without any real background in designing jackets mm. and I think that's a good thing because you're coming at it with an enthusiasm and you have the element of fluke which can be super important, which is also, I often use this analogy with music. Uh, when musicians get too clever and too well-versed in what they're doing, mm. there's no surprises. There's no, they know this is what it takes to make a good tune. No innovation. Yeah. Right. But say, if I'm making music, I only have a vague idea what I'm doing, so I'll make some mistakes. And wow, suddenly that's, mm. wow, that's cool. Uh, there's an old track by uh, Portishead where it drones along and in the middle there's this little quirky piano bit right. which just makes the entire tune mm. and I'm quite sure they never learnt at school that insert mm. this little piano twiddle mm. in the middle it will make the song mm. and it's the same thing with jackets say uh, yeah, stick a pocket on the back or whatever and suddenly yeah. you've got something that hasn't been taught at fashion school I do I, I have found that I am quite, not anti-education, I think education is extremely useful, but I do think that education pushes people into boxes. And so if I'd gone away and done a fashion degree or a textile degree or something like that, I, I would have found it extremely useful, but I doubt I would have ended up with the jackets I've got now or even started my own company, because I think, first of all, I don't know how scary it is. So I can remember somebody in, in the clothing world saying to me when I started Volpine nine years ago they said if you knew how hard it was to make a clothing company you wouldn't you wouldn't do it 
you know, I feel sorry for you. And I, I remember thinking, hmm, I could be really demoralized by that, but actually, I'm just going to sod it. I'm just going to give it a go. Because I, I now know from that that the clothing is a very hard thing to to get into because it's not like you're making bolts or you know something that you simply has a specification then you sell it because it's about personal taste you know you don't know whether that color that size of course sizing is a complete nightmare because i find sizing fascinating because you may not have seen this but essentially I, I've seen sort of huge amount of information about sizing, about trying on people, people feeding back. And essentially, I think most people think that there is a perfect size, that somebody somewhere has the perfect size. Some company has worked it out and it just, it'll never happen because there's just too wide a range of sizing. What you can do is find your sort of, your onus or your demographic, the sort of person who would be into your jacket. So I have a thing of, I suppose you call it the dad bot, is a, is a guy who's reasonably in shape, but not that in shape, who just wants something that's going to fit them. But my jackets won't fit as well on a really fit, skinny 20-year-old. Um, and it won't fit as well on a really chunky, you know, big fat guy. So, it, you know, and you have to find your sort of area that you can fit into. And unfortunately, people actually get quite angry if they, it doesn't fit them. And they go, well, you didn't think about me. And unfortunately, you do think about them, but you just, you just can't include everyone. The bell curve just can't be wide enough. Otherwise, I'd have 25 sizes and I'd go out of business because they're so expensive to make. I did once uh, do a blog post about that. And you have the Japanese sizing, you have the European sizing, you have the American sizing, and all these bodies are just from the starting point, widely different. Uh, the dad bod in America, I think, is the athletic fit, which is very, uh, builds your confidence yeah. to be told that uh, your slightly chunky fit is yeah. considered athletic. <laughs> On live chat, I use the word chunky uh, instead of, and it could mean muscular, but it could also mean fat, essentially. Well, I mean, that is what it is, calling a spade a spade. Uh, it was interesting what you said about um, going to, say, college or university to learn something versus working it out on your own. Uh, I work with a lot of programmers, and there's a huge difference between the people who have gone to university to learn to program computers right. and the people who have a genuine passion for it, who just love coding. Mm. And it's always the latter who will innovate and actually create the good stuff that others they come to work and they write their code and they go home mm -hmm. and I think it's like that for so many things uh, my background is in civil engineering highway design uh, I find elements of that that interest me but I have so many interests beyond and outside that yeah uh, interests that I haven't studied but I will read up on and work out and master mm -hmm. And I think the world's changing in terms of it used to be that you had a vocation or you had a career and that was your thing. You find the thing that you're good at and you do that thing and you are that thing. And, and now I think it's recognised that we can be so many different careers and so many different phases, so many interests. Uh, and that's great because when I was growing up, I was interested in so many different facets. I was as interested in science and astronomy as I was in, in the arts and dance and, you know, all these different influences that my mum brought to me. And it really frustrated me. I had to choose a career and go to university and do a degree. 
I like to support science and physiology, which looking back is an absolute... That, that isn't actually a degree, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks that sports science is basically standing around in a tracksuit blowing a whistle at people as they do press-ups. But it, it was um, biochemistry and biophysics and really cool-sounding stuff. It was pretty sciencey. But the fact was, it was actually people with this around, around their necks pouring beer over their heads, mainly. So it was a very jock sort of degree, and I'm the absolute opposite of being a jock. And so I just didn't really fit in socially, and so therefore I, I didn't really enjoy the degree. I found the actual work relatively interesting. But after that, I completely left it. The only thing I've used from that is I did ergonomics and the biophysics, and that's quite interesting when you're working with jackets because. I'm interested in how the body moves and how you keep the body the right temperature and all that kind of technical stuff. But I probably could work that out anyway. But, but that degree really just meant that I got pissed and got to meet girls and yes. grew up a bit. Um, but ergonomics, uh, I mean, you, you have to actually be aware of it because it strikes me that a lot of clothing and jackets are made for a static model. Mm. Mm. Uh, they're made for standing around it. Yeah. Very few actually consider that you want to move mm. because they're made so body hugging, body shaped that you couldn't really move unless you had it a size larger. I'm really glad you identified that because that's something I thought about a lot, and that comes from I started thinking about it with Volpine because uh, cycling is a relatively extreme example of a an ergonomic problem. Because in cycling, of course, you're then quite far forwards with your arms right out in front of you. If you mimic that position standing up, you're basically throwing your arms up into the air. And then you're pointing your head forwards, and it's quite a strange position for a normal fashion jacket to be put into. And it basically just doesn't work. The sleeves right high up towards your elbows, and you have very tight shoulders, and it's quite tight around your neck, and then it's tight around your stomach, and it just, it's horrible thing and you know the whole concept of Volpine was that you know I want jackets to work on and off the bike and the problem I had to solve was I need a jacket that was as good off the bike as it looks as it is on the bike so we started using pleats and different sort of mechanisms so that the the, the jacket would uh, pivot basically around the various positions you had and also to put room into the shoulders and have to have longer arms um, and, and just the cut sort of developed, we had a longer cut at the back so that your bum cleavage didn't show. Um, and so I learned all that, hopefully perfected that as I went through Volpine. And so when I started from, I didn't want to make overtly cycling jackets, but I knew that cycling was something I wanted them to be able to perform within of many of the things that we all do as men. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to calm that down a bit, but I'm going to use some of these things, like the extra room in the shoulders. So, for instance, I have this, it sounds pathetic, but when I was um, designing Fram, my kids are quite small, and I'd walk them around the park, and there's this sort of, these bars, these monkey bars, and I would do pull-ups. If that was the only exercise I would get that day, I'd do pull-ups. And if it was cold, I'd still be wearing my jacket. And if I wore a, you know, a fashion jacket from High Street, I would just rip the sleeves. Um, whereas mine, the test was, can I throw my arms up in the air, pull myself up and down, and the jacket be the same as it was and become. And that was almost like a litmus test. I like these little litmus tests. Just these, I, I like real world tests. Um, so people say, oh, do you sort of, you know, have these tests of waterproofing and, you know, do you send it off to the lab? And I go, no, I wear it in the rain. <laughs> you know, because... 
the body will also change the way that things are waterproof because you know your skin is pressed, your shoulders might be tight and pressed against the fabric and all these kinds of things. And well, you're also generating heat and sweat from inside, so yeah. It, 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 the best way to mimic results is not to mimic them; it's to do them. Mm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, there is a part. What amazes me, I don't want to start slagging bigger brands off, but it, obviously, Brahm was born from a frustration with the bigger brands. Is that I think that they undersell a prom. They they don't complete a promise. You know, my jackets are not amazing. They're not completely game changing. They're not better. Actually, no, I think they are better. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But I think the reason that I've people are buying my jackets is essentially because there are two major problems with jacket manufacturers, the big brands I'm talking about, not the guys that we really like, the other brands that I really respect, is that it's all about margin. So these guys, they get big investment, they get bought out. You know, the unfortunately economic model in the world is that you have to grow. If you're going to grow profit, you have to increase margin. Increasing margin, and you're very interested in this, you have to start compromising on morality. Um, you have to start compromising on quality, on performance. You reduce the quality of fabrics. You, you start pulling out the detail. Um, and essentially a jacket that, you know, from a well-known brand, 400 quid for a jacket 10 years ago, is a completely different jacket now for 400 pounds to what it was. And that, that genuinely really pisses me off because I think it breaks a promise. And it's wrong. It certainly is. And I mean, part of that is that people don't understand how most markups work and how huge the markups are. So when you're buying that £400 jacket, it might have cost £75 to make. And the rest is markups along the way. And the bigger the manufacturers, the more mm. points of markup they will have. Mm. So a £400 jacket from a small maker you're probably getting a lot more for your money than a 400 pound jacket from one of the huge ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's the, I think the irony of the larger businesses is even though their volumes are much, much higher, um, they, they, their margins are even higher as well. But their biggest problem, the bigger manufacturers, and I think any clothing company. So the big thing I learned from Volpine is I, I start, well, one of many things I learned from Volpine in terms of the economic model of what I was doing was that because I was having to buy a lot of stock for growth, which in the end was what made Volpine go bust because I was buying an enormous amount of stock from 150% growth and it didn't turn up. All my cash was sunk in factories instead of in the bank. So I thought, right, I've got to change that. Um, you know, that's the first thing I'm going to think about. I never want to go through that again. So I'm going to reduce my range and I'm not going to grow very, very fast because that's dangerous. One of the reasons that dangerous, that's dangerous is buying a load of stock. If you don't sell that stock, then what happens is you start discounting to get rid of it in winter and summer sales, or mid, even now mid-season sales, constant sales. And of course what happens, which is completely natural, I do it when I buy other brands, is you wait. And you wait to buy your jacket at 40% off or whatever it's going to be. And now your price isn't £400 anymore, it's £200. Yeah. And, 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 then, and that's what people know because yeah. the price you're actually willing to sell it for is its actual value so whenever you're charging £400 for it people know that you are trying it on because £200 is what yeah. you'd sell it for in a few weeks because you, they know that you wouldn't be selling it for £200 unless you can make a profit yeah. and you wouldn't be and unfortunately a lot of brands big and small are now trapped in sales 
you know, and so Private White did a really interesting thing. So I don't know if you know James, who, who runs Private White, but Private White um, used to be on that model, not, not I don't think for any negative reason, just because sometimes you just have to do something, you know. And he just said, you know what, we're going to keep our prices exactly the same, we're going to reduce them, and we're just going to keep them at that. And I was looking at Private White, I know James, and I just thought, hmm, yes, okay, this is all starting to be confirmation of what I should be doing. I should just keep the price the same. Oh, hang about. So right now, my next problem is, if I'm going to keep the price the same, I can't have sales. If I can't have sales, I can't overbuy stock. I just can't. Because otherwise I'll have to do sales. So now, I've got to limit the number I make. And then, it, then it, I, it's, it's this sort of clunky thought process of what I said, okay, if I'm only, only going to make a max of 100, if I'm good at marketing, which is apparently my sort of skill, then that's quite useful. I can make people desire those jackets. You know, I'm, being, I'm quite open about that. And if they desire 100 jackets, when I could sell 300, I'll sell out. That means I can do pre-orders. Pre-orders means I'm taking my cash up front, which means I don't have to get investment. That means even less risk. And then what I worked out recently, you may have noticed that I started doing 20% essentially discount. And now I am discounting. But 20% discount is now for a reason. What I'm saying is, I know I'm taking your cash up front, and so I'm going to reward you for it. And frankly, I'm going to motivate you to do that. Everyone's a winner then. Yeah. You know that you get something back for giving me the money three months in advance, or whatever it might be, and, and you feel better about that arrangement. And I'm helped a great deal because I get the cash, and it's a symbiotic relationship. And what I really like about that is that that peer level sort of symbiosis rather than saying we're the big brand and we're just going to fire information at you and you know you make that choice to say look I'm, I'm a real bloke and I've got a company this is what I'm trying to do and these are the reasons why if you like it will you help me if you don't like it don't buy the jacket and, and it's just very open and some people well, I probably don't know the people who don't like it because they're not going to tell me. They just sort of move on. And some people do. And, and, and the great thing is, if I've only got 100 jackets to sell... You only need 100 customers. Yeah, so, uh, the pressure is, is low. So, so far, it's, it's working pretty well. Um, so we're a year old. And as I, my body language is I can start biting my nails. It's, as a business owner, I'm very circumspect. I'm constantly worrying about this stuff and trying to improve it. But essentially, what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm about to go have a little family holiday and try and sort of think about all this information that's come over the last year, because we launched literally a year ago, almost to the day, is, is what's, what's gone right, what's gone wrong, where have we got to? And, and, and actually, my partner Jason has said, give yourself a pat on the back because it's actually working and as a business owner it never fails to amaze fellow business owners when our businesses actually start selling stuff you go like Christ it actually work because it's terrifying I can imagine it is uh, putting all your eggs in a basket like that and uh, and having to do what you believe in uh, with regards to Private White though you will notice on their website now they do have a discounted section oh really they do um. <laughs> And uh, they also um, claim a huge transparency about the pricing of what they do. Right. Uh, and if you ask other people in the industry to sort of look at the numbers, well. Okay. 
I'm hyper aware of sort of. So I, I, think, I, think, I think that is a huge marketing thing as well. I mean, okay. everyone is after a marketing angle, right? Whether it's the small maker using blind monks to assemble their goods, <laughs> or if it's the huge maker who's rescuing plastic from the sea and recycling it into their clothes. I mean, everyone is trying to come up with an angle today that that the public will respond to. Mm. I, I, I've got a really interesting thing I just thought of, actually. Since we're talking lots about jackets, and I think that the guys who buy these jackets are really interested in the sort of process. And I, I think, like everyone, we all kind of develop our own perfect jacket. If I could have a jacket, it would be like this. Is So I am designing thermal jackets. It's like summer, uh, it's quiet, great time to design. Um, I've permeated lots of thoughts in terms of what I want to do with thermal jackets. I don't want to give too much away, but... And we talked about this a little bit a few months ago, actually, because you were saying you had a really a favourite jacket and you really like this and you wanted me to get together with another founder, but unfortunately it didn't happen. Yes, yes. And he's a really interesting guy who's actually put the jacket design aside now because he was unable to make headway with the major outlets and managed oh, really? to get distribution of it. He's really oh, clever. A shame. Trekking jacket. Mm. Very, so he's uh, not making them anymore? No, I don't think so. Oh, what a shame. I, I think that would I'd find that devastating if I couldn't do that. But I think I think this is the, the thing that I think a lot of people recognise about business is that it's very hard, but a lot of people don't. I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurialism is I think on people so I've stopped calling myself an entrepreneur. I try to stop doing that and call myself a small business person because I think the word entrepreneur is becoming toxic. It, it's this view of this slick sort of person who has this high life and you know has sushi lunches and hangs around with celebs and it actually entrepreneur is actually just graft and fear i think if you call yourself one it sort of implies that you have found the secret source that uh, right. really helps everything but people think you're rich the and, and the actually the opposite is true is because entre most entrepreneurs in the media are very very rich and famous people think that's what entrepreneur is and actually most entrepreneurs are just people starting a business with their personal savings and then you know working a second job to try and pay for that and and, and actually not not that it's like a you know a charity case they've chosen to do that but but it's a very hard life at first because the risk is that you put in that risk in the hope that you will become successful and everyone has their own definition of success whether it's fame or money or just feeling good about what you do anyway so i dropped entrepreneur and i think just to go around in circles i'm really really genuinely sorry to hear that that chat has stopped because you know i've come to realize how much joy and satisfaction i get from designing and making jackets but also seeing them bought so part of what I've come out of my breakdown a couple of years ago is start to to appreciate the things I didn't think about before so one of them is I, 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 I should actually be really grateful and really happy that people like my stuff whereas before I used to go oh no that's not good enough we need to sell more things or oh I've just got to worry about making pants now or whatever it is rather than going oh actually stop a second isn't it great somebody likes my design Pat on the back well done hopefully not in an arrogant way but it's it's a strange thing of just being constantly needy for I don't know I don't know what it is so it's, it's very analogue to the whole social media thing though now isn't it right. I mean everyone wants to be liked 
of course, mm. making a jacket and selling it and wanting to be liked is a lot more valuable than uh, posting uh, a photo on your dinner on social media and wanting right. to be liked for that mm. but it's the same with blogging so I mean I, I research and put in effort and, and write things so it's very valuable for me to that people read it and give me feedback so why do you blog? I think I've always had this need to share what I appreciate uh, as a teenager we had the local radio in the north of Norway in Tromsø where I was living and every week we'd have a two-hour show where we'd, we'd order the latest records from England to be able to play them. But it was part of this feeling of wanting to uh, to share the good things. Uh, and I think that's where I come with the blogging now as well, because I blog about things that I think are cool, that I like, that I'm interested in, and I want other people to know about it. So... It's the sharing of that information. It is the, it is the sharing, and... Uh, and it's also been a process for me where I wanted to be able to write and I was never sure that I actually could write mm. but then when I did start writing people were saying oh that's, that's good you're good at writing and I thought wow that's cool <laughs> that's something I always wanted to be able to do did that scare you? it didn't scare me too much but it the more people read what you write, it does mean that you are under an increasing pressure to deliver. And right. There are times when I just have nothing I want to write about and I just can't produce anything. And then it becomes even more pressure. Uh, I often say that you can sort of tell by how much I'm producing how my mental state. Right. It was the same... Uh, 10, 15 years ago I spent 7 years restoring an old car wow which was really what was the car? it was an old Jaguar S-Type which had been standing around for 20 years gently going back to nature mm -hmm. there was probably only 95% of the body work left of it but it took me 7 years and it was a really it was a way of proving to myself that I could actually do it and I found out ways that meant that I could do it uh, and the w way to actually reach the goal was to do something every single day whether that meant spending five hours outside grinding away rusty metal welding in fresh metal mm. getting really dirty or just going outside for five minutes and uh, tidying up some tools just something but mm. that continuity yeah. something every day mm. because the moment a day was dropped it become two weeks three weeks mm. and there was no progress at all mm. but I actually completed it and it turned out really nice great uh, probably about two and a half thousand hours in it over seven years was it worth it? it was it worth it financially no <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a victory for me that's really yeah, all yeah. it turned out I, I think that's there's also a comparison to that in business as well is the, what what's fun what I've discovered is I'm a very proactive, you know, uh, motiv naturally motivated person. I didn't know that. And it's easy to be motivated when doing something you enjoy, you believe, and also, frankly, you, you, you can't afford not to get right. Um, but so you sort of, you, it's almost like you're, for me, I find fear a, a, a motivator. And as long as it's not too much, then that becomes too much pressure. But, but also, it's a great motivation when you start enjoying things. And, Actually, what I find is momentum is incredibly important. 
in business, as in doing a business. So sometimes when I'm knackered or, you know, there's stuff going on with the family or whatever, you know, I just have to sit and then I just start, I'll start with something simple, customer service emails or, you know, whatever, and I'll just start get going and get going. And I've got to get going because, you know, like at the moment I'm, I'm sort of just pretty wrecked really. It's been very hard sort of 18 months, hard sort of X years, and I just feel really knackered. And, and that's usually when my creativity tends to drop. And what's interesting is I thought, oh, I've got to design jackets. And I wasn't that enthusiastic. And now I've got into it, really into it, and, and found my new motivation. However, with blogging and you know the sort of creation of the, the emails that I do and stuff, I, I'm finding really quite hard um, because I just have quite low, finite resources at the moment. And it's, it sort of shows, it's interesting. I think any an outsider who doesn't know me can tell my level of energy by the number of the, the output that we see. And the output at the moment is relatively low because I'm just like crawling to this holiday. And hopefully by you know, August, I'll be uh, all guns blazing again and they'll be getting a, an email every half hour. I think the effect hour. of the holiday will be that you're so knackered after your holiday, you will appreciate <laughs> getting back into work again. Yeah, with a six and a three-year-old, you might be right. Um, so, I want to do this, this little exercise is with an th ultimate thermal jacket. So I've already got my designs actually being done at the moment. So the way I design is I have obviously these ideas and particularly I, I think about fabrics and usage, you know, what, what, what's, what sort of this weather look like? So I'm designing two jackets at the moment. One is a sort of cold autumn jacket, very, very practical jacket that um, it's just a real workhorse that you probably wear most sort of British winter weather, which is just sort of uh, like three to eight degrees centigrade, bit of drizzle, bit of rain, a lot of wind, just sort of generic. And then there's one that's a sort of super thermal, probably much more Norway based jacket, which is sub-zero, um, freezing snow, sleet, torrential rain, like do everything. And, th and that's a really sexy jacket to make because it's really fucking hard to do that <laughs> properly. And um, so I've got these two jackets. So what is your ultimate thermal jacket and for, for really cold weather with really mixed conditions? Uh, well, there's two ways to make a winter jacket because you do have really say, well, at least two properties you want. One is the insulation, and the other is the wind stopping. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, with the weather that we're having these days and the climate changes, you probably also want it to be waterproof to some degree. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, one of the, the true giants of winter jackets is the old Fjellraven uh, expedition, mm -hmm. which is designed for sitting, fishing on the ice, hours on end in right. minus 20. It's, uh, it must be about uh, four or five inches thick with down, mm. basically two layers, so there's no seams that go through anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's like being in a big thick duvet. Yeah. I have one, which I bought years ago because I was commuting and I had to stand on this train station. Uh, I often joke that that's where Lord Kelvin set his absolute zero. <laughs> but standing there in the morning, midwinter, with a bladder full of coffee for half an hour, is the most miserable thing you could do. Actually, Nick, I think there are more miserable things you can do. Mainly I'm saying this so that we can have a break. 
and play some mildly annoying music. Um, in seriousness, you can be far more miserable by living a loveless life and being a bastard to people and never really fulfilling your potential or serious chin-stroking things like that. Or you could be really miserable by placing your testicles into one of those ham-slicing machines and then very slowly taking little slivers off them. I have quite an unusual imagination. I apologise for that. But really, what you should be doing right now is pouring yourself a beer or smashing up your stereo or something that uh, is a little light relief before we uh, go through a lot of jackety chat again. Okay, bye. Expedition on, it was like being back in your bed, nice and warm. It was also superb for sleeping in the train. <laughs> it did get too hot in the train. Well, you just have it open and just right. like nesting in it. Okay. <laughs> it was br- it's brilliant. Uh, don't use it that much these days because it's so huge. Yeah. But it's all insulation. Uh, so it's on the scale of practicality versus style, it's very heavily towards practicality. It's uh, like many winter jackets, it's good for sitting around. Yeah. Okay. Not you wouldn't uh, use it for skiing. No. Um, but my other favourite winter jackets tend to be huge parkas, thick waxed cotton. Mm. Uh, probably very little insulation. Maybe just a thin, uh, thin layer of wool inside. Okay. But that's where you add in your own insulation. Yes. Yes. So depending on the actual weather outside, how cold it is, you put in a knitted jumper of very mm. thicknesses. Yeah, because layering it is the sort of best way to do it, and of course it gives you far greater. So width of use gives you the flexibility and that wax cup is keeping the wind out so the air inside is stationary and insulating um, and I see a lot of winter jackets that aren't really that good because they've got seams going through so the heat is coming out uh, you have wind blowing up the arms you have to have proper cuffs to stop the wind coming up um, hood design very very few people seem to manage to make it proper hood and that is a hood that sits close to your head. It sits round your face, so wind doesn't blow in round. I'm smiling because I'm interested in what you think of the hood on my uh, waterproof. I'll have a look at that later. And, <laughs> and also, it has to. You have to be able to move your head right. without it opening up huge gaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's quite simple stuff. But you see that people who make these jackets, they're not really thinking about that. They're thinking about how cool it is, how cheap it is to make, how whatever. Yeah, but. There are very basic things that you just have to get right. I think that's the point, it's functionality. For me, functionality has to come before everything else. You start with the functionality. And the great thing is, in terms of design, I feel that there's some pretty established rules. Um, and, and, and for me, I'm not going to move too far outside the rules. So for instance, with the field jacket you've seen, I, I sort of use gunmetal and I use different kind of snap at a sort of non-traditional, it's not the brass type, type, type snap, and just just sort of tweaking outside those sort of hyper-defined classic design, but, but not falling too far beyond it. And I really enjoy that area, just sort of subtle innovation rather than essentially what becomes fashion, where you just say, hey, let's just create this mad sort of sci-fi thing, because what I'm, I'd love to define what, what happened with style and fashion that's somewhere between the sort of 
1920s and 1950s, pretty much, in my opinion, all the best design happened. And it hasn't really changed or improved since then. You know, with the 50s, whether it's a Harrington or the 30s or whatever, with a suit and tie and military wear and jackets, you know, you probably know a lot more about this than me, but, but you know, I find that fascinating. There was a particularly uh, verdant period, probably pre-Second World War, where everything was basically done beautifully and ever since it's never really caught up. I don't know if you agree. I think people appreciated, uh, I, I hate to use the word even, but tailoring more right. then. Uh, you had a sense that you invested in a good coat and it would last you a long time. That was the only coat you had your best coat and you had a work coat so it's not like now where people and I won't even point the finger at myself tend to have quite a few coats <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, how many coats have you got? I won't comment <laughs> I can at tell you after three. I have <laughs> at least three yes um, but you mentioned military and that is very interesting because mm. the military tends to design things fit for a purpose yes with few compromises, other than maybe that they get made a little more cheaply than intended, but they make things with a very, very clear purpose. But the fashion industry has sort of latched on to, oh, we'll make something military-inspired, so let's make an M65, right. which is what everyone makes. And it, I just see them all over it, and I think, oh, another one. Yeah, it's okay. It's a, it was a, it's a classic design, but. There are so many others. Um, say for an ultimate winter coat, we have the Swedish M1909, often called the Mats Larsson, after one of the companies that made them for the Swedish army. It's basically a combination of sheepskin and immensely thick canvas. Right. Uh, big buttons at the front. It goes down below your bum. It's got big, huge pockets, easy to open, so you can stash your hat, you can stash your mittens in there or whatever. And it's got this massive, huge sheepskin collar you can just tuck up around your head, basically only the top of your head visible, and then button up the front. Wow. And it is totally no compromise. There's no fashion finesse in it. Very heavy? It's about, uh, about four and a half, five kilos, I think. Okay. So, I mean, it could probably have been heavier, but compared to modern jackets it's a massive thing yeah but also you're basically wearing almost two sheep's worth of sheepskin <laughs> so it's, it's immense uh, that is well due a comeback uh, you've also got the interesting uh, tropal jacket that uh, the British army made during World War Two. it was really made when they had plans of invading Norway and needed something suitably hardcore for the cold Norwegian weather. It's again uh, heavy canvas. The first ones were made with sheepskin, the later ones were made with a, a wool type of insulation called kapok. Uh, the same massive collar, but this one goes even further down. I mean, it almost goes down to your boots. You can't really move around in it, but great for standing around. Uh, so that's also inspiration could have been taken from there. It's got these wonderful brass clasps and again the huge huge pockets which are easy to open um, I'm really interested in the I tend to graduate towards the 
the mid area because I think I, I always think of British weather because British weather is generally in a mid area you know it's very Atlantic weather you know it's generally mild cloudy a bit rainy and actually the, the number of torrential rain days you have in the UK is very low today is why I'm wearing my waterproof um, and then and, and actually what's changing about the British weather you get a lot more hot days it seems uh, sadly in my opinion and um, and actually the number of snow days is extremely rare but of course we also do travel and, and people I think generally graduate towards the extremes I want a waterproof for torrential rain uh, so what I find is people always ask me is the field jacket waterproof and I go no and they go oh well what's the point and they go well I deliberately didn't make it waterproof I didn't, didn't want to waterproof because the, on this sliding scale of breathability versus waterproofing there is no amazing perfect fabric which is nailed it so you're just as breathable as no because the best waterproof fabric is probably a rubberized cotton say the old mm. Macintoshes mm. I mean they do a terrific job in keeping the rain out but they also keep every bit of dampness you create on the inside yeah so you might as well have not been wearing it if you're if you've been rubbing or something because you're as wet as if you'd have been and that's the fascinating thing is when you look at feedback and people say well hang about your jacket was supposed to be waterproof but I was getting wet and I go that's your sweat you know and I used to talk to other manufacturers and they had the same problem as people say oh you know I've got this sweaty jacket oh, sorry I've got this wet jacket it was coming through it's going look it's not coming through it's your body making you wet so for me as you say that's pointless so for me if I have a really very very waterproof cycling jacket I'm wearing that to keep heating not to keep water out actually so the waterproof is actually the, uh, the byproduct of the waterproofing is just that I have a shell and not, I'm going to get wet anyway because I'm going to have to sweat and I'm exercising so it's kind of unavoidable but it keeps I'm basically it's like a wetsuit really it's fairly unpleasant to think about um, you can get very good waterproof breathable sort of fabrics but they're not that good you know and there's a lot of brands which sort of I think oversell that so so what I've done with so the waterproof I've got at the back of my chair right now what I said was okay I want a waterproof Right. Breathability is really, really important. And, and also what it looks and feels like is incredibly important. So I, I really dislike um, crinkly plastic fabrics. Um, I, I just think it's incredibly hard to do anything nice with them. And so I'm not going to have crinkly plastic fabric. I'm going to use a natural, natural fabric. And of course, for you, probably the most obvious um, fabric to use uh, that's natural is ventile. Um, we'll go on to that in a second because I can see shaking head. So, so for me, the first thing is Ventar, but I, I'm, I know Ventar very well, and it's a very stiff, unforgiving fabric. Uh, big fan of it, great fan of the story, but I don't like it myself. I've never used it yet. I'm very tempted to. And then I just, I just started searching, 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 uh, and Leanne, who I work with, also had the same brief. Is let's find this natural fabric that's got has been wa waterproofed has this lovely grain and has this sort of matte feel of just a non-waterproof fabric and eventually we found it in Italy um, and it's absolutely gorgeous it's very interesting at free market when people hold that jacket because immediately they comment on the fabric and the other thing I wanted is I wanted it to be crease proof and I wanted to have a real structure because I think that structure in raincoats is often lacking it's one of the problems with a sort of plastic uh, sort of jacket is it just sort of drapes it just sort of flumps 
on you. And I really hate that. I like clean lines. I like crisp jackets. Anyway, so you were shaking your head at Ventile. What would you, what's your... Well, uh, Ventile is a uh, very nice looking fabric and it has a story behind it. Mm. Uh, my problem with Ventile is a lot of the story behind it, which is just that. Right. And also that it has been marketed very, uh, can I say, big fat lie. Wow. Okay. Because the whole story is that it was developed during World War II by the Shirley Institute outside Manchester for immersion suits for fighter pilots mm. to use so that when they had to crash land in the sea, they'd have a higher survival rate. Hell of a, hell of a test. Yeah, but there's no actually not really much proof that this was ever done. Right. So uh, a lot of the Ventile story was made up by an advertising agency working for Nigel Cabourne around 2003 when he released the Ascent, Ascent of Cabourne collection. Okay. They made a booklet, a small book that came with it, and a lot of blurb came from that. Wow. which was then later fed back to the Ventile marketing uh, and has been used by everyone from Private White to whatever since then. Uh, and Ventile has always been marketed as the sort of super fabric from Britain. Right. thing was, uh, since the late 90s, it hasn't actually been made in Britain. Mm. It's been made in Switzerland by Stotts. Uh, still very good fabric, no problem there. Mm. Uh, much has also been made of the fact that uh, the way Ventile works is that when it gets wet, it swells up and it becomes waterproof. Mm -hmm. um, they've always claimed that there was no extra proofing added, but it is actually full of fluorocarbons mm. as a durable water repellent. So my problem is that it's not wasn't hasn't been made in England for 20 years. Right. It is full of chemicals, which are very harmful to the environment. Uh, the whole story behind it is basically bullshit. Mm. So, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's a nice fabric. Uh, you also have a Grenfell cloth, which uh, Grenfell had been using since uh, around the time when Ventile was made. It's a gabardine cloth uh, used for raincoats, water resistant, wind resistant. Uh, no longer made in Britain, but Grenfell won't say where it's made. So, is it actually still Grenfell cloth? Because it was made in a certain factory in Britain until the late 90s, I think, when Grenfell changed owners a couple of times. So a lot of it for me is, are things environmentally friendly? Are they ethical? Are they actually what they say? It's so easy today for companies just to, um, either they make up a story mm. or they actually buy a story by resurrecting a company that went bust years ago, like Raj and Cabon did with the Libro. Mm. Initially, uh, the Libro, was a, a collaboration that if you actually look back you can see that Libro hadn't been trading for decades mm. the brand was just bought up and resurrected and then mm. pushed out again so I, when I, whenever I see a, a family company still trading still doing their stuff in a proper way I find that utterly charming say like uh, the William Lennon shoe factory in uh, Stony Middle just south of uh, Sheffield mm. It's, it's the same family, still owning it. There's still only 10 people working there, still in the same building, same machines, and they're making their shoes at a reasonable price. They've not been lured away by the, they could sell out to the Japanese market, say, or yes, you still get a nice pair of boots for 200 pounds. And that's, that's another interesting thing about my strategy when I was starting from, is 
I think there was always an assumption. I almost think it's because I lived in London, you were just surrounded by this, this sort of thinking, but it was an assumption that with Volpine, I was always going to grow very, very fast and sell it for lots of money. And then somebody much, much bigger would do things to it. And now, of course, I recognize what happens during that process and the amount of risk and how that affects the environment, all kinds of different things. Growth harms things and people. I think the, the, a red flag might be if you're using words like exit strategy right. in your business proposal. Yeah, I very much did. Yeah. So, you're not going to raise investment, that sort of investment as you are. So with me, I, I, I don't have an exit strategy. It's very, you use the phrase family business. Is Fram was designed to be a business to support my family. And, and actually what I discovered when I started doing the numbers, I said, okay, if, if I can be reasonably successful at this, I can have a nice enough life. And the, the biggest point about nice enough life is I don't have that pressure. I don't have to justify myself to, to, to people who rightly are demanding what they promise them to growth and the pressure of that because you can't like, always deliver it because problems always happen with high growth companies. I, I can just live a nice life. And I define that nice life. And that means that and I also know what the world looks like. I'm selling these jackets, I'm making them as good as I possibly can do. Five years, 10 years down the line, I continue to have a nice life. Maybe I'll introduce a new jacket, you know, but what I'm not trying to do is the constant pressure of, I've got to get bought out by X, Y, and Z, and uh, this group, and I've got to, you know, prove these profitability figures and this growth figures and all this kind of stuff. Because it's a completely different world, I know from experiences. The space in my brain each day is, oh, I better pack up those jackets and make sure I answer all these emails and make sure everyone's happy and look, make sure our website works properly, rather than, oh, holy crap, I've got a huge meeting coming up next week, I'd better do that presentation, otherwise they're going to garrot me, you know, and, and you know, I, I've even started thinking, I don't want to get ahead of myself in very early days, about whether my son or daughter might like to run it. You know, I've already thought it's probably going to be my daughter because I think she's just got that sort of mindset versus my son. Who knows? And it, frankly, it doesn't matter because I'm just doing what I do. You know, I, I probably plan a maximum of a year ahead and that year is essentially what jackets are going to make. Are going to make. It's not going to be what are my growth figures? Am I going to have to raise investment? Who am I going to be employing? And it's just a, it's enormously freeing doesn't free you from the pressure or the fear of running a company, but it certainly reduces it. Um, so, yeah, I'm just glad that when I built that model, it, it so far seems to have made sense. And just to finish on that point as I gabble on is that um, I, I have the great advantage of having been through a business already to learn all this stuff. You learn by your mistakes, and I made a lot of mistakes. I got a lot of stuff right, I got probably more wrong than I got right, which is why I'm, that doesn't exist anymore. And, and so I discovered the biggest mistakes were in terms of my philosophy and what I was trying to do and trying to achieve, rather than, let's just, my wife reminded me, in 2010, I started Volpine to be a nice family company that meant that I could do what I was so passionate about and that I believed in. And then, for a million different reasons, I could probably write the timeline down, it became a different beast. Um, and it sort of went in a very different direction from what I probably expected it to. This time, we literally have written on the wall the strategy, and the strategy is not many jackets, same price, sell it online, family business, 
don't change that. At the end of the day, it's doing things for a right reason, not for a wrong reason. And I'm not saying that keeping an eye on business is a wrong reason, but you're doing it now because you see it as a, a long-term thing for you, not let's pipe it up as much as we can and get shot of it within two, three years right. and then make lots of money. And or, or more likely fail. Well, that wasn't your plan. I mean, no, but, you, but you, now you, I know that that's the most likely outcome. You, you wanted uh, a place in France and a Bentley convertible and uh, kids off to private Definitely school. not a Bentley convertible, probably a Maserati. All that. But <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing. I mean, more money, more problems, as I think one of the rappers yeah. once said. Yeah. Because you start earning more money, you have to have a bigger house because you want people to know you have more money. You want bigger cars, flasher cars, maybe more cars. Uh, you want a holiday place, maybe you want to start traveling around with different people. And it's all this, but being happy with what you have and maintaining that. Say like William Lennon and their 10 people working there, they're making enough money to keep everyone working there happy. Mm. So that's that's good enough. Mm. Uh, it doesn't always have to be a chase for the next stage. Um, it's, um, I think, uh, going back to my wife texting me popping up as we record and, and that's it useful because we've got we should roughly aim for an hour I'm trying to stick to an hour but anyway so uh, the I, I've started using this phrase even though I hated it at first the gift of having a nervous breakdown is that you just have an, a massive punch in the face uh, and, and a good kick into the ribs and a couple of punctured lungs actually that will kill you but anyway in turn uh, is uh, it is this massive recentering of what your priorities are, and, and, and I can see very clearly that I was so massively, incredibly stressed, obsessed by trying to first of all grow Volpine, then to save Volpine, and completely ignoring everything in my health, my family, all this stuff. And now you sort of realise what you do have. And once you get over that initial period, which is really horrific, is you go, okay, well, I'm. I'm with the same woman I still love after 23 years and I've got two amazing healthy kids touch wood and you know I've still got still pretty healthy and you know health is incredibly important you know mentally and physically and so you go actually you know it's, it's a very glib thing that people say all the time and you don't really take it in when you read health self-help things in magazines and stuff but it's really true is that is the stuff that matters you know you can't buy that stuff and and actually, I, I've been stripping away, you know, the accoutrement of my life, you know, over the last couple of years and simplifying it constantly to give myself more time. Because the thing I really want is time. Time to do things I, I, I give me joy. So I actually really enjoy developing the website. I really enjoy blogging. I really enjoy riding my bike. I really enjoy uh, dicking about my kids uh, rather than smashing my head against a laptop to produce a spreadsheet at one o'clock in the morning. Um, so, yeah, it's a kind of an obvious self-help thing to say, but it's absolutely true, and it, it's just hammered home, unfortunately, very clearly with a negative event. I think having a breakdown, be it large or small, is, is your body's way of saying, that's it, stop. And while it might take you a while to get back, that sense of just being able to breathe breathe freely again mm. and there's no one demanding anything from you it's just downtime and then you can come back mm. 
is is very valuable. So, um, and and the guilt for me also the removing mostly the guilt of reducing your ambitions. So I have a terrible problem with um, being so motivated that I work too hard. And I don't say it's an arrogant thing, I just it's the way I am. Is if you leave me to my own devices, if I was single, all I would do is work. Um, and I recognise that very clearly myself. And lucky that I have a wife who hits me on the head with a plank and makes me stop. And I'm getting better at stopping myself. But um, I think, I don't know what that is. It's probably some sort of proving myself hang up or whatever but but actually getting better and better at relaxing and I think this is a problem for a lot of people in the world you know first world sort of western society is that we sometimes feel that we have to be doing and moving all the time and, and it's actually really toxic the, the sitting against a tree and staring at the sky thing seems to be lost well I think that's because you're a loser then aren't you because you're not out there earning the big money you're not to these uh, you're always closing sales you're always doing this I mean that's just what society respects isn't it because if you're always closing well, sales marketing has caused the, us to and, yeah. and the big money you've got the big car so you're obviously a success you've got mm. the big watches you get the hot girls whatever I mean that's sort of the ideal people chasing mm. but really it's just all capitalist bullshit yeah and, th- and this is the compromise certainly the dichotomy that I've I've sort of struggled with is I've gone okay I'm selling stuff at the end of the day I've got to market that stuff I believe that marketing has affected the way that society operates and how we perceive ourselves and I think a lot of it can be very toxic so I've got to find a way that I can make a living by selling stuff but without this sort of harmful marketing and the first thing I identified which I feel very strongly ever since I was a child actually is that this sort of hyper masculinity this alpha sort of view of men and then men's wear is quite often you have this sort of super cool hot tough guy on a motorbike you know you know showing you know this this whole lifestyle is basically you need to be more muscular and more whatever and I thought no I, I, I want to talk about real men I mean at the end of the day that guy on a motorbike is a real guy but he still goes for a poo and he still has a bit of a cry because his mum's ill and you know all this kind of stuff and so I thought but we never ever talk about that he's portraying a very strong image though yeah and that's intoxicating because I think you know as a straight man I, I there are certain things I really would like to be and, and was told I should be but I was always a very sensitive quite a creative kid and that really caused a lot of problems for me at school quite a rough school and so I felt I was at a sort of out of place there but as I've grown up I've realised that society sort of become a bit more like me not because of me but you know it's, it's men are allowed to be more creative and more sensitive and touch their emotions and stuff without it being naff or gay as the you know the insult that I stupidly was called when I was younger and so anyway so I wanted a brand that was a bit more emotive without but also I I don't want it to be over the top I don't want it to be saccharine um, I still want it to be masculine however it's very hard to define masculine these days but I wanted to I just wanted to, some sort of room to be able men to talk to each other and the really scary thing it's actually genuinely scary and I'm finding quite hard to sort of come to terms with this is that men approach me online and share their problems sometimes really horrific problems and I find that extremely emotionally draining. 
and not mainly I'm scared because I don't know how to I don't think I've got the ability to give good advice all I can be is somebody who listens so that's all I try to be and often time that is all that is necessary yeah. because nobody has the solutions to all the problems no. men are generally pretty poor at talking about proper things mm. dead good at talking about sports or say jackets right but you're going through a divorce you're really in a shit place you could really need someone to talk to and say you've got a friend then who's gone through the same mm. actually opening up and talking about it can be very very helpful and, and I think that what's shocking to me is that so I probably recognise it myself so many men think that they are alone and in feeling stupid about the fact that they are like this when other people aren't and I think that's a lot of that's to do with social media and to do with this view of all your mates are doing amazing, wonderful, happy things. When actually, we don't want to post the fact that we're crying because, you know, X, Y, and Z. You don't put that stuff on Instagram or on Facebook. And most of our lives are, I think, relatively monotonous. Monotonous. Some of our lives, are, and hopefully not too much, are pretty grim. And some of our, li- some of our life is full of joy. Um, but most of it is just trudge. And, and, I, and I think one of the great, the, the most important things in life is to actually start to enjoy the trudge and for it not to be trudged, actually just to be, so that's why I'm an entrepreneur, is, is actually that trudge, that process becomes interesting and fun because I'm doing something new. Whereas if I was just, you know, stamping sheets in a actuaries, it would be pure trudge and I'd probably be much more miserable than I am now. There's also a point that um, most people think that they have heaps of unique problems. Right. Once you get talking to others, though, you'll realise that the list of problems or the types of problems are very much shared. Every man going through a divorce with kids has very many of the same problems. And I'm sure the same for females. Mm. But the thing is, if they're never talked about, you never realise that. No. Uh, There's something I was thinking about with regards to marketing. For me, there's two types of marketing. You've got the honest marketing, where you lay out what you have mm. with the facts, and the person looking at it it's a market stall. can can make up their own opinion. Yeah. Oh, this looks good. Yeah, I like that. I'll buy it. Or you have the manipulative marketing. Mm. Now, we were watching telly last night, and we wanted to see something on ITV, and the increasing number of ads between <laughs> the show segments and it's all totally manipulative. They're all trying to create some feeling in you, some mm-hmm. desire, some, something or other yes. that you didn't have before that came along, and it's all because they want you to give them money. For me, if you're doing that, I'm not interested. No. But if you're making something good and you just tell me all about it, the facts, I mean, they can be embellished a little bit to make it sound a little romantic, but don't manipulate and I think the key is about having confidence in your products. If you have a genuinely good product and you can talk about that with enthusiasm and you believe in it, that is your marketing. And that's the best marketing for me. Whereas if you actually have the same product and it's an inferior product as everyone else, which is most products in the world, most breakfast cereals or most cars, then you have to find some other way. I can always remember there was an advert in the 90s, I think, that I think I can't remember what brand Peugeot or particular. It doesn't matter. Clearly, I didn't remember. But it was this song, uh, M People, Look for the Hero Inside Yourself. And you had this guy pulling this girl out of the 
you know, uh, away from some disaster and doing all these wonderful heroic things. And you go, that's got absolutely nothing to do with real life. That car is not going to enable you to become a hero. And, and it was utter, utter bollocks. And I just thought, okay, I think that really, really stayed in my head. I must never do that, <laughs> you know. Well, I think uh, if your car is a reason someone wants to be with you, it's probably not the person you want to be with anyway. Right. Um, cheap cars tend to try to advertise themselves as being uh, magnets for desirable people, but um, <laughs> they rarely are. In truth, most people don't really care what you're wearing or what you drive. It's all about what you want and, yourself. And just on that point, what I find interesting, though, is we care what we wear. I care, so, so I have this constant thing of I must be vain or reasonably vain because I care what I look like. I care whether my hair is the, in the right place. Not to the point of constantly checking the mirror, but, you know, I put stuff in my hair and I wear nice stuff. Am I, on the one end of the scale, you could say that that's purely because... You know, I just appreciate good design or whatever. The others end the scale. It's because I'm a horribly vain and self-obsessed person. Actually, I think it's a compromise. Is actually we care about being reasonably attractive, whether it's to ourselves or to other people. But you can also get on with just wearing stuff that works. And I think that's the key: is the things that I'm attracted to, the clothes that I'm attracted to, are classic designs that work, that make me look reasonably acceptable, rather than. Again, going back to fashion where I'm sort of a glowing beacon for you know, trying to look sexy when I'm probably not. People do tend to think that as they're moving through their day, walking down the streets, everyone's looking at them and judging them and evaluating them. The truth of the matter is that most people, I mean, their, their eyes might sort of pass over you, but they're right. not really caring about what you look like at all. Some people will, naturally, a small part, but most people don't care at all. So you're really dressing for your own good. Mm. Uh, if you feel good with yourself, maybe you'll be happier, more confident, uh, just have a better day. But people don't really care what you look like or what you're wearing. And that's very freeing. If you're dressing for yourself, it's very freeing. What is that Italian event that incredibly dressed sort oh, of uh, peacock? Pity you the peacock event. So I, I love what those guys wear but I hate the photographs of them because it's so self-conscious and the thought of being if somebody invited me to Pity Umo um, I would be absolutely terrified about being judged you know about whether my outfit is good enough I just look I'm quite scruffy really I'm actually surprisingly for a clothing company owner I, I, I don't iron stuff very much and you know I because I, I, I'm not that bothered and I think that the outfits, the suits, the colours that they wear at Kitimo are absolutely incredible. I'm really jealous of that. I wish I could do that. I wish I had the money to be able to buy those beautiful bespoke items. But I could never go because it, you're on show, you're on display, and that's not what I'm doing it for. You're being judged all the time. But the thing is, you know, that these guys haven't dressed for themselves. I mean, pretty much everyone you see photos of there have dressed up to be photographed. Mm to uh, ensnare the photo, photo photographers to right. take their photo so that they'll appear on the social medias, the trade publications, whatever. And that is something I really can't get down with. <laughs> uh, it just turns me off. I'd love to go to Pity sometime, but I... I think it's fascinating. I can never remember the dates or whatever, so I always forget to. <laughs> but... Um, 
there is a it's not a healthy thing at all and also for a trade event I think they do have a massive amount of hangers on there who are there just to be photographed Mm. instead of actually ordering pre-ordering next season's clothes which is what that event actually Mm. apparently is about Mm. I um, I hope that one day the farm will be successful enough that I will buy bespoke suits in unusual colours that is my thing I used to be a bit of a peacock in my 20s and wear silly silly things and there's a bit of me which quite like I think I, I like the thought of dressing up and, uh, and of doing most of what I, like what I'm wearing now for a man is probably a slightly off um, normal you know just a bright orange colour t-shirt or whatever but it's not that far off and that's my jet daily outfit just nice clothes but I do love the thought of wearing a pink suit with a yellow tie and a uh, and a blue shirt and you know green shoes and, and uh, entertaining at children's parties <laughs> uh, yeah um, I think we're going to uh, end there um, thank you very much for your time Nick uh, very kind of you we're now going to have lunch with your family my pleasure thank you um, bye stay Thank you very much to Nick Johannesson, well-dressed dad, for his huge breadth of knowledge on jackets and fabrics and stuff like that. He has a very good blog. You really should uh, read it. And he seems to be a fan of Fram, which I take as a huge compliment because, as you can tell, he does not hold back um, and he really, really gets into the nitty-gritty of jackets. So um, I am very flattered that he likes us and he gave me his time. Um... So, um, if you would like to subscribe, then do that. If you would like to like us or give us a review, that would be even better. Um, Otherwise, you can just get on with your merry life and hopefully we made it slightly better. Um, Framjacket.com is where you can buy jackets. You don't have to buy jackets. Obviously, it's a free world. And thank you so much for your time. Take care and bye-bye.